This morning, I invite you to open your Bibles, if you will, to the book of Acts, and we're in chapter number 18, Acts chapter 18. Do you have your Bible? I hope that you do, and you'll open it and look with me to or turn it on, find your Bible app. Technology stresses me out. And you can look into your app or your real Bible <laughs> to the 18th chapter of Acts. Has anybody besides me ever experienced a little stress in your life? Would you raise your hand? I saw a picture, a cartoon one time, and it was a picture of a blender sitting on a counter and a goldfish inside the blender and the plug was on the counter but unplugged and the caption said stressed the next picture was the same exact picture except it was plugged in and it said stressed out that would stress you out, wouldn't it? Maybe you feel like you're in that kind of blender in your life. Look with me to the Apostle Paul. He had been under tremendous stress, tremendous long travel of missionary work, going from one great city to the other, preaching and sharing the gospel, forming churches, and conflict at every hand and suffering. And in the midst of it, God was with him. But the Lord comes to him in a special way and ministers to him in the midst of his stress. And it's absolutely beautiful. And it's a great word for all of us. So in chapter number 18, beginning with verse 1, after these things, he left Athens and went to Corinth. He found a certain Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontius, having recently come from Italy with his wife, Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he came to them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them, and they were working, for by trade they were tent makers. And he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to Jews that Jesus was the Christ. I just realized I'm reading from a different translation than what you're reading on the wall. And when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his garments and said, Your blood be upon your own hands. I'm clean. I'm innocent. From now on, I'll go to the Gentiles. And he departed from there and went to the house of a certain man named Titus Justus, a worshiper of God whose house was next to the synagogue, and Crispus. The leader of the synagogue believed in the Lord with all of his household. And many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing. 
and being baptized. And the Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no man will attack you in order to harm you, for I have many people in this city. And he settled there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. Amen. As we look at this passage of Scripture, Paul is coming from uh, Athens, and he goes over to Corinth by ship. It's a short little distance, 50 miles directly west of Athens is Corinth. Corinth is on an isthmus. If you look at a map in the back of your Bible, you see this little isthmus on the southern part of Greece. It is uh, overlooking the Adriatic and the Aegean seas, and it connects the Peloponnesus, the southern uh, little landmass of southern Greece, to the mainland of Greece. And so it's a commercial center, it's a great city, two major seaports. It is a place of great business trade, it was a huge city by that world's standards, over 700,000 people living in Corinth at the time. One of the unique things about it, 200,000 of them were freedmen, 500,000 of the people that lived in Corinth were slaves. It was a, a trade route from all directions, from north to south, uh, along the mainland of Greece, but also east to west with two major seaports. It was cosmopolitan. It was the capital of Achaia, the southern province of Greece. It was a powerful city filled with merchants and seafarers and navy people and commercial ships. It was also a pagan center of worship. Of course, they worshiped Neptune there, the god of the sea. In Latin, the word is Neptune, Poseidon is the name of the Greek god in Greek. And so they, that was a cult and a center of worship there. But the greatest influence of pagan religion in Corinth was Aphrodite. And so they had, it was a center of worship. There was a thousand cult prostitutes that worked out of the temple of Aphrodite. The city was filled with immorality. One commentator said um, that Corinth was the foulest city of the ancient world. It was deeply immoral. It was homosexuality abounded. People were given to gross sexual immorality and depravity. To be Corinthian meant that you lived an immoral life, a life of drunkenness and debauchery and, and dishonesty. And so Paul is here in Corinth. That's stressing him out, this kind of city with all of its power and influence but all of its corruption and idolatry and sinfulness. And in verse number two, it says he found a certain Jew named Aquila. He finds these two Jewish believers. It's a husband and wife, and his name is Aquila. His wife's name is Priscilla. They are involved in the same tradecraft that Paul was raised in and Paul uh, was skilled in, and they were tent makers. And so he said he joined forces with them and began to work with them and probably for them with Priscilla and Aquila. But it was great. It was like iron sharpening iron. And he's, he can invest in their lives. And they become close, fast friends for all of the rest of Paul's ministry. So he begins to work with them. Paul, 
Uh, they worked with leather, uh, goat hair weaving, making tents. All rabbis were trained in a trade skill and learned to practice it. As a matter of fact, the rabbis taught, a man that doesn't teach his son a trade teaches him to steal. So everybody needs to know how to work and have a job. And Paul knew that. And he supported himself often in his ministry. Aquila and Priscilla have been driven out of Rome because Claudius, the emperor of Rome in AD 49, expelled all Jews out of Rome. And because of all the uprisings they had experienced and controversy, and so he ran most of the Jews out of town. That's why Aquila and Priscilla are in Corinth, and by God's sovereign design, they meet up with Paul, and they begin to work with him. Now, Paul has his habit, verse number four, look with me. He is going to the synagogue every Sabbath, and he's reasoning with them in the Sabbath that Jesus is the Christ. Notice, he's not only reasoning with them, verse number four, he's trying to what? Persuade now, let me ask you this question. Is it right to try to persuade people to become Christians? That's not just rhetorical. I'm waiting for an answer. Is it right to try to persuade people to become Christians? You say, Pastor, that's a dumb question. No, it's not. Because there's some people that teach that you just shouldn't. Some say, well, God chooses who he's going to choose, and it doesn't matter what we do, and we shouldn't be involved in trying to persuade people. In the 1700s, William Carey was, he's one of the fathers of the modern mission movement, William Carey was in a meeting with a bunch of very conservative Calvinistic pastors in England, and they were having a debate on whether or not you should be involved in overseas missions and taking the gospel to lost and what they called heathen people. And one older pastor stood up and said to William Carey, young man, sit down. You're an enthusiast. When God chooses, to convert the heathen, he'll do it without consulting you or me. And so, Kerry wrote a book about whether or not it's right to use means to share the gospel with people who are lost. Paul, he begins to focus his ministry on evangelism and sharing the gospel as he does everywhere. And Paul says, that the, that the, he says, listen, we shall, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he writes, to the church at Corinth, he said, listen, we shall all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. We all will give an account of our lives. Therefore, but since we're all going to stand before God, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. We're doing all that we can to persuade people. He's given us a ministry of reconciliation, and he's given the message of reconciliation that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. This message has been given to us, and we need to proclaim it. So Paul, in a great statement in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 20, says, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were entreating through us. And we beg you on behalf of Christ, 
be reconciled to God. So he's preaching, and Paul says, God has chosen us as instruments to proclaim the gospel. He does all the saving, but we're to proclaim his glorious gospel to all who listen. This was the ambition that drove Paul, and it should be ours as well. Number one, the ambition to be pleasing to him in everything. Number two, to proclaim the gospel to those who've never heard it. Number three, he was called to be an apostle to the Gentiles, to go to the Gentiles and share the gospel. Be faithful to God's heavenly calling on his life. So uh, Silas and Timothy arrive, and when Silas and Timothy arrive, Paul quits tent making, and he devotes himself full time to preaching the gospel and sharing the good news of Jesus in the synagogue and in the city with all who listen. And he focuses on it, but there's resistance, and that always occurs. And notice resistance is among the Jews. Verse number six, they resisted and blasphemed. And he shook out his garments. And he said, your blood be on your own heads. I'm clean. I'm innocent. From now on, I'm going to the Gentiles. He says, I fulfilled my responsibilities. I've spent these weeks and months preaching in the synagogue to you, my Jewish brothers and sisters, that Jesus Christ is Messiah. But you are rejecting him. So now I'm going to the Gentiles. And he now is not meeting in the synagogue, but just next door, there's a man that has a house. His name is Titus Justice, and he, he sets up shop and headquarters in Titus Justice's home, and he's preaching the gospel. Titus Justice is a Greek, God-fearing uh, man who went to the synagogue, but now is a follower of Christ. And something awesome happens. Notice. There's a conversion of a very important leader. Verse number eight, you have your Bible. Look, Crispus, he's the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord and all of his household. So here's the, one of the most important leaders in the Jewish community. His name's Crispus. He's in charge of the synagogue in Corinth. That means he's responsible for the programming of the synagogue, of the teaching of the synagogue, of the daily order, of the worship services. It's very important. It's like a pastor. He has an important role in the city and in the synagogue, and he becomes a full believer in Jesus. And when he believes in Jesus, so does his whole household, his children, his wife, his family, his uh, servants. They trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And not only do they trust in Christ, they are baptized. Now, question is, should we be baptized when we believe in Jesus Christ as our Savior? Is it right to be baptized? Yes. You see, there's two responses to the gospel. You either reject the gospel or you accept the gospel. And those who accept the gospel, they believe in Christ. They trust in Christ. They call on his name. And they're baptized. So my question to you today is if you've never been baptized, will you today submit yourself to his lordship 
and be baptized. Will you? Baptism is an outward expression of an inward reality. And when you've trusted Jesus and called on his name and said, I want you to be my Lord, Master, and King, then the first thing you need to do is to be baptized. It's not optional. It's not optional. Why would you refuse to be baptized? Why would you refuse to confess Jesus as your Savior? Baptism is the way we confess our faith in Jesus Christ. It's an outward confession that Jesus died for my sins, Jesus was buried, and Jesus rose again. Baptism is a picture of my new life. The old Tim is dead and buried and believes in Jesus. And a new Tim lives with Christ as his Savior and Lord. And Crispus and his whole family believe and are baptized immediately. When Peter preached, he preached this. Repent. Let each of you be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. For the forgiveness of your sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. My friends, listen. Everyone who's a follower of Jesus Christ needs to be baptized as a believer, confessing your faith in Jesus Christ. Amen? And if you've not done so, then I would love to have the privilege to baptize you. Amen? Or one of our pastors. Wow. Well, in the midst of all of this stress and anxiety that's building in Corinth, Paul is stressed to the max, worn out and exhausted, and the Lord visits him in a special way. That brings us to the outline today. In verse number 9, in a vision in the middle of the night, the Lord said to Paul, don't be afraid any longer, but go on speaking, and don't be silent. Amen. Notice his command in verse number nine. He says, stop being afraid. That's the first point in your outline. Stop being afraid. Paul, you say, Brother Tim, was Paul ever afraid? Yes. But God met him in that fear and gave him strength. Amen? Paul was a man just like us. Paul knew fear. Fear of what? Maybe fear of bodily injury, fear of death, fear of in, by intimidation, ungodly surroundings, power of authorities. He's preaching the cross of Christ. That's a major conflict with the world of Corinth. In all the midst of the pride and arrogance and proud people and moral people, he's preaching the cross of Jesus Christ. He's pre pre preaching repentance of sin, submitting yourselves to God, turning to Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. He's preaching about the holiness of God and 
turning away from immorality and putting your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Paul writes to this church at Corinth. You want an insight in his preaching and whether he ever had any fear. Take your Bible and look with me to 1 Corinthians chapter number 2. 1 Corinthians chapter number 2. And listen to what Paul says about his ministry and preaching when he was among them. And when I came to you, 1 Corinthians 2 verse 1, when I came to you, brethren, this is how I came, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ. And him crucified. And I was with you, listen, verse 3, in weakness and in what? Fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. That your faith should not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Listen, he said, Paul, don't you be afraid anymore. Stop being afraid. Let me tell you about fear. Fear displaces faith. When you get filled with fear, it pushes faith out of your life and a trust in God. When you trust in yourself or you trust in others, It moves you away from trusting in God, and before long, you become fearful. The other thing fear does, fear paralyzes us from acting in faith, doesn't it? As a matter of fact, in the Old Testament, you remember the story about Goliath. How many of you remember that Bible story from Sunday school, Goliath? Goliath was a big dude, right? Giant of a man, a hulking warrior. He stood so much taller than any of the other men. He was part of the Philistines. They're gathered on one side of a hill, and in the valley is the Valley of Elon. On the other side of the hill are the Israelites, and every morning he would come out and stand there in all of his battle array, this giant of a man, and he would mock them, and he would say, why don't you come and fight with me? As a matter of fact, rather than all of our armies fight, let's just make it man on man. You bring out your best man. Aren't you all servants of Saul? You know what he's doing? He's tweaking Saul. Because Saul stood head and shoulders above all the other Israelites. He was the biggest man in camp. He was the king. Yet Saul wouldn't go out and fight him because he was filled with fear. And Goliath, every morning, he he makes fun of them. And he says, aren't you servants of Paul? He says, of of, of Saul, I am a Philistine. He says, where is your man? Can't you hear him echoing it? Where's your man? But there was no man to come and fight. Because their man was filled with fear. Saul. It paralyzes you. That's what fear does. It causes you not to have faith. That's what fear does. 
and Kadesh Barnea, the children of Israel, on the threshold of going into the promised land, and they send out spies. You all remember the story, don't you? And they send the spies into the promised land to check it out to see if there's really a land flowing with milk and honey, like God said. They send out men to go and check it out and check out the cities and the roads and, and the people that are there and what kind of people live there and whether the cities are fortified or not. And these leaders of the 12 tribes of Israel come back, these spies, and they say, man, we bring in produce. It's a land that's flowing with milk and honey. It's bountiful. The produce is unbelievable. It is an abundant, it's a place of blessing. But there are fortified cities there, and the people are warring people there. And we even saw the, the, the descendants of Anak there. And they're giants. They're huge, tall people. And we couldn't fight against them. These are the forefathers of Goliath. And whenever we saw them, he says, we became like grasshoppers. We saw ourselves as bugs compared to them. And when they looked at us, they must have thought we were just bugs. And they were going to squash us. They were scared to death. And when they gave that report, fear went into the whole tribe of Israel. And they refused to believe God and go into the promised land. A whole generation died out. And didn't experience the blessings of God because of fear and not going forward. And that's why the Lord says to Paul in a vision in the night, stop being afraid. I got you. Amen? I got you. Listen, Jesus said, fear not, little flock, for the Father has chosen to give you the kingdom. 2 Timothy 1.7 says, God has not given us a spirit of fear but of love and power and a sound mind. Amen? God's given that to us. Paul said, be anxious for nothing, but in everything, with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will guard your minds and hearts in Christ Jesus. Isn't that glorious good news? Now, you, I hear some of you saying, well, pastor, how do I not fear? I don't want to be fearful. I'm glad you asked. Number one, reflect on God's faithfulness in past seasons. Has God been with you in faithful seasons in the past? Absolutely. You remember young ruddy David showed up to camp where Saul was afraid to go fight the giant Goliath. And David, he came out and he made his big speech, Goliath did. And David's brothers are there and some of the other soldiers. David hears him as he's incensed that this man would taunt the armies of the living God. David looked around and said, what will be done for the man that kills this dude? His brother said, shut up, peep squeak, go back home, take care of the sheep. He said, no, seriously, I got a mighty God, my God... Mighty God will deal with this man. He's taunting God. God will take care of him. He sees old Saul. Saul said, you want to use some of my armor? I'm I, I really not going to be using it. Because he's scared. He said, How are you? he said, I can't wear your stuff. He said, aren't you scared? He said, I'm not scared. I'll tell you one thing. When I was out my, all by myself taking care of the sheep, and a lion and a bear came, he said. God was with me, and I killed him. And I killed a lion, and I killed a bear. And I'm telling you, 
If God gave me power to stand up in the seasons past, he'll give me power to stand up today. One of the ways that we displace fear is remember how God was with us in seasons past. And then focus on what you know to be true. Not the lies that Satan whispers in your ear. Focus on what you know to be true. Is God sovereign? All that believe that, raise your hand. All of you that don't, I'd like to talk to you right after church. Secondly, is God good? Raise your hand. So he's good and he's sovereign. He's overall, right? Is God with us or not? All of you believe that God is with us. Would you raise your hand? He's with us. Is God for us? Raise your hand. He's for us. Is God good? Yes. Is he in control? Yes. Is he with us? Yes. Is he for us? Yes. Will God supply your need that you need? How many of y'all believe God will supply your need? Raise your hand. Focus on what you know to be true. Secondly, confess what you know to be true. Tell one another. Encourage one another. Strengthen one another. Praise God with one another. You need to be in fellowship with one another because we get encouragement and strength and we stimulate one another to love and good deeds and faithfulness to God when we fellowship one with another. You need to be in a community group. You need to be in worship service. And you need to be growing in your faith. And you need to be testifying to the goodness and grace and glory and strength of Almighty God. And when we go through trials and when, we got, when we're facing death and when we're facing heartache, we need a community of faith that stands in the gap and says, God is good. God is sovereign. God is great. And God supplies our need. And he never leaves us alone. That is what we know to be true. And we should confess it together. We're going to have the Lord's Supper in a moment where we're confessing what we believe about Jesus. We're going to sing a song confessing what we believe this morning in worship. And then act in faith. Just act in faith. Trust God. Fixing your eyes on Jesus because he's the author and perfecter of our faith. Amen? Number one, he gives him this command, stop being afraid. Secondly, keep on speaking, Paul. Keep preaching. Keep on speaking. In verse number nine, don't be silent. Don't quit. One professor at a university addressed the students one day, and he says, it's always too soon to quit. Don't quit. Charles Spurgeon said, by perseverance, the snail reached the ark. Don't quit. Don't quit talking. Don't quit preaching. Why? Because the word of God is powerful. Do you all believe that? I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. Jeremiah 23, 29 says, Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, 
like a hammer that shatters a rock. Isaiah 55, 11 says, So shall my word be, which goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty or void without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding for which I sent it. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 says, For the word of God is alive and active and sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even the dividing of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and judges the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. God's word is powerful. If we stop speaking, whose voice is heard? If we quit speaking, what's the voice that will be heard in your family to your children? Satan's voice only. The world's voice only. My friends, can I tell you, this gospel's life. This word of God is life. Let's speak it because it brings life. Amen? What is his promise? Notice in verse number 10, he says, I am with you. Notice in he says, I am with you. No man will attack you in order to harm you. Here's his promise. Number one, he says, Paul, I'm with you, dude. Listen, stop being afraid. You just keep on speaking. Now, let me tell you my promise. Here's the promise. I'm with you. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Listen to me, Paul. Isaiah 41.10, do not fear, for I'm with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. He's saying, Paul, dude, I've got you. Isn't that good? Put your hand out just like that. Uh, just like that, would you? Just like that. Hold it right in hand. These are God's hands, and you're right in the middle of it. And he has you. Just take your hands and close them like that. You're in his hands. And nobody can snatch you out of his hands. Somebody say hallelujah. Isn't that good news? John Wesley, his dying words on his bed were these. Best of all, he is with us. He is with us. Lloyd Ogilvie was the pastor in Hollywood Presbyterian Church, and then he became later in his life the, the chaplain of the United States Senate. Senate. And he wrote in his later years, he said, I've learned... This repeatedly in my own life, when my strength is depleted, when my rhetoric is unpolished by human talent, when I am weary, the Lord has much better tool for empathetic, sensitive communication. The barriers are down. When I know I can do nothing by myself, my poverty becomes a channel of his power. More than that, often when I feel I've been least efficient, people have been helped most effectively. It has taken me a long time to learn that the lower my resistances are and the less self-consciousness I have, the more the Word of God comes through. 
He's with you. He's using you. And then he says, I'm protecting you. He said, you know what, Paul? He says, nobody's going to harm you here. I've got plans for you. Nobody's going to harm you. Psalm 34, 7 says, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. Amen. No weapon formed against you shall prosper. Old Testament, you remember Elisha was the man of God and the king of Aram was mad because Elisha kept telling the king of Israel every move that he was going to make. And the servant in his quarters said, how does the king of Israel know our every move? He said, because the man of God sees him. He hears what you talk about in your bedroom because God tells him. And he said, well, let's kill the man of God. They surrounded Dothan where the man of God is staying. His servant walks out and he says, oh, comes by running back in, says to the man of God, we're toast, Elisha. We're toast. They found us. And they've surrounded the whole city with horses and chariots. We're dead meat. Elisha looks at his servant and he said, there's more with us than with them. And he looked up at him and he said, dude, it's me and you. He said, Lord, open his eyes. The servant's eyes were opened. He went outside the gate and looked. And around the city on the mountaintops were horses and chariots of fire. The angels of the Lord encamped around them. He said, Paul, I got you. I'll take care of you. Woo! Gives me chill bumps up and down my spine. God's got us. and He is with us. Amen? And then finally, he tells him his plan and his, and, uh, and his purpose will be accomplished. He says, I'm working, Paul. Listen to what he says. I have many people in this city. He said, Paul, you see all of these idols and you see all of this power and you see all of this great city and you see all of this immorality and you see all of this mess in this city. And, and Paul, you've experienced suffering and pain. But I'm telling you, Paul, in this city, I'm going to do something great. Because I've got people I'm calling unto salvation in this city you don't even know about. Folks, the church is made up of those who were chosen before the foundation of the earth. God is sovereign and we are responsible to preach the gospel, but God does all the saving. And many came to Christ. Again, Paul writes to this church later when he writes them a letter. And he reminds them in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Listen, verse 9. Listen close. Do you not know the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. You say, Pastor, that sounds hard. He's not done. Stay with him. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. 
You're justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and the Spirit of our God. He said, we kept on speaking, we kept on believing, we kept on trusting, and we kept on believing that God was going to work and God saved some of you who were caught up in the worst kind of sin you could ever imagine. And now you're stalwart saints of God in the church of Jesus Christ. Woo! Isn't that a mighty thing? Hey, aren't you glad God saved you? Rescued you? Amen. And he's still doing it today. Don't be afraid. Trust in him. Stop borrowing trouble. Look to me. I love you. Keep speaking and ministering no matter what. Keep giving. Keep trusting. Keep caring for people even when they're unlovely. Keep speaking in my name. Believe I'm with you. And I'll give you all the protection you need. Believe and your life will bear fruit because I'm at work in your city. God is at work in our city too. What a vision statement for our church and for our life. Father in heaven, thank you for the powerful truth of your word. And I pray that today as we hear it and receive it, that, Lord, we would apply it in our lives. If there's one person that doesn't know Christ as Savior, I pray that today they would come, repent of sin, and trust Jesus as their Savior. If there's one person here who's never been baptized, I pray that today they would make a commitment in their life to follow Jesus in obedience and be baptized. Oh, Father, thank you for loving us. In Jesus' name, amen.